Chapter forty three of Howard's End. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Howard's End by E. M. Forster. Chapter forty three. Out of the turmoil and horror that had begun with Aunt Julie's illness and was not even to end with Leonard's death, it seemed impossible to Margaret that healthy life should re-emerge. Events succeeded in a logical yet senseless train. People lost their humanity and took values as arbitrary as those in a pack of playing cards. It was natural that Henry should do this and cause Helen to do that, and then think her wrong for doing it. Natural that she herself should think him wrong. Natural that Leonard should want to know how Helen was, and come, and Charles be angry with him for coming. Natural, but unreal. In this jangle of causes and effects, what had become of their true selves? Here Leonard lay dead in the garden from natural causes. Yet life was a deep, deep river. Death a blue sky. Life was a house. Death a wisp of hay. A flower. A tower. Life and death were anything and everything except this ordered insanity where the king takes the queen and the ace the king. Ah, no! There was beauty and adventure behind, such as the man at her feet had yearned for. There was hope this side of the grave. There were truer relationships beyond the limits that fetter us now. As a prisoner looks up and sees stars beckoning, so she, from the turmoil and horror of those days, caught glimpses of the diviner wheels. And Helen, dumb with fright, but trying to keep calm for the child's sake, and Miss Avery, calm but murmuring tenderly, no one ever told the lad he'll have a child. They also reminded her that horror is not the end. To what ultimate harmony we tend she did not know. But there seemed great chance that a child would be born into the world to take the great chances of beauty and adventure that the world offers. She moved through the sunlit garden, gathering narcissi, crimson-eyed and white. There was nothing else to be done. The time for telegrams and anger was over and it seemed wisest that the hands of Leonard should be folded on his breast, and be filled with flowers. Here was the father, leave it at that. Let squalor be turned into tragedy, whose eyes are the stars, and whose hands hold the sunset and the dawn. And even the influx of officials, even the return of the doctor, vulgar and acute, could not shake her belief in the eternity of beauty. Science explained people, but could not understand them. After long centuries among the bones and muscles, it might be advancing to knowledge of the nerves, but this would never give understanding. One could open the heart to Mr. Mansbridge and his sort without discovering its secrets to them, for they wanted everything down in black and white, and black and white was exactly what they were left with. They questioned her closely about Charles. She never suspected why. Death had come, and the doctor agreed it was due to heart disease. They asked to see her father's sword. She explained that Charles's anger was natural, but mistaken. Miserable questions about Leonard followed, all of which she answered unfalteringly. Then back to Charles again. No doubt Mr. Wilcox may have induced death, she said. But if it wasn't one thing, it would have been another, as you yourselves know. At last they thanked her and took the sword and the body down to Hilton. She began to pick up the books from the floor. Helen had gone to the farm. 
it was the best place for her since she had to wait for the inquest. Though, as if things were not hard enough, Madge and her husband had raised trouble. They did not see why they should receive the off-scourings of Howard's End. And of course they were right. The whole world was going to be right, and amply avenge any brave talk against the conventions. Nothing matters, the Schlegels had said in the past, except one's self-respect and that of one's friends. When the time came, other things mattered terribly. However, Madge had yielded, and Helen was assured of peace for one day, and night, and tomorrow she would return to Germany. As for herself, she determined to go, too. No message came from Henry. Perhaps he expected her to apologize. Now that she had time to think over her own tragedy, she was unrepentant. She neither forgave him for his behavior, nor wished to forgive him. Her speech to him seemed perfect. She would not have altered a word. It had to be uttered once in a life to adjust the lopsidedness of the world. It was spoken not only to her husband, but to thousands of men like him, a protest against the inner darkness in high places that comes with a commercial age. Though he would build up his life without hers, she could not apologize. He had refused to connect, on the clearest issue that can be laid before a man, and their love must take the consequences. No, there was nothing more to be done. They had tried not to go over the precipice, but perhaps the fall was inevitable, and it comforted her to think that the future was certainly inevitable. Cause and effect would go jangling forward to some goal doubtless, but to none that she could imagine. At such moments the soul retires within to float upon the bosom of a deeper stream, and has communion with the dead, and sees the world's glory not diminished, but different in kind to what she has supposed. She alters her focus until trivial things are blurred. Margaret had been tending this way all the winter. Leonard's death brought her to the goal. Alas, that Henry should fade away as reality emerged, and only her love for him should remain clear, stamped with his image like the cameos we rescue out of dreams. With unfaltering eyes she traced his future. He would soon present a healthy mind to the world again, and what did he or the world care if he was rotten at the core? He would grow into a rich, jolly old man, at times a little sentimental about women, but emptying his glass with any one. Tenacious of power, he would keep Charles and the rest dependent, and retire from business reluctantly and at an advanced age. He would settle down, though she could not realize this. In her eyes, Henry was always moving and causing others to move until the ends of the earth met. But in time, he must get too tired to move and settle down. What next? The inevitable word. The release of the soul to its appropriate heaven. Would they meet in it? Margaret believed in immortality for herself. An eternal future had always seemed natural to her. And Henry believed in it for himself. Yet, would they meet again? Are there not rather endless levels beyond the grave as the theory that he had censured teaches? And his level, whether higher or lower, could it possibly be the same as hers? Thus gravely meditating, she was summoned by him. He sent up Crane in the motor. Other servants passed like water, but the chauffeur remained, though impertinent and disloyal. Margaret disliked Crane, and he knew it. "'Is it the keys that Mr. Wilcox wants?' she asked. "'He didn't say, madam.' "'You haven't any note for me?' "'He didn't say, madam.' After a moment's thought she locked up Howard's end. 
It was pitiable to see in it the stirrings of warmth that would be quenched forever. She raked out the fire that was blazing in the kitchen, and spread the coals in the graveled yard. She closed the windows and drew the curtains. Henry would probably sell the place now. She was determined not to spare him, for nothing new had happened as far as they were concerned. Her mood might never have altered from yesterday evening. He was standing a little outside Charles's gate and motioned the car to stop. When his wife got out, he said hoarsely, I prefer to discuss things with you outside. It will be more appropriate in the road, I am afraid, said Margaret. Did you get my message? What about? I am going to Germany with my sister. I must tell you now that I shall make it my permanent home. Our talk last night was more important than you have realized. I am unable to forgive you and am leaving you. I am extremely tired, said Henry in injured tones. I have been walking about all the morning and wish to sit down. Certainly, if you will consent to sit on the grass. The great northern road should have been bordered all its length with glebe. Henry's kind had filched most of it. She moved to the scrap opposite wherein were the six hills. They sat down on the farther side so they could not be seen by Charles or Dolly. Here are your keys, said Margaret. She tossed them towards him. They fell on the sunlit slope of grass, and he did not pick them up. I have something to tell you, he said gently. She knew this superficial gentleness, this confession of hastiness, that was only intended to enhance her admiration of the male. I don't want to hear it, she replied. My sister is going to be ill. My life is going to be with her now. We must manage to build up something, she and I and her child. Where are you going? Munich. We start after the inquest, if she is not too ill. After the inquest? Yes. Have you realized what the verdict at the inquest will be? Yes. Heart disease. No, my dear. Manslaughter. Margaret drove her fingers through the grass. The hill beneath her moved as if it was alive. Manslaughter, repeated Mr. Wilcox. Charles may go to prison. I dare not tell him. I don't know what to do what to do. I'm broken. I'm ended. No sudden warmth arose in her. She did not see that to break him was her only hope. She did not enfold the sufferer in her arms. But all through that day and the next a new life began to move. The verdict was brought in. Charles was committed for trial. It was against all reason that he should be punished, but the law being made in his image sentenced him to three years' imprisonment. Then Henry's fortress gave way. He could bear no one but his wife. He shambled up to Margaret afterwards and asked her to do what she could with him. She did what seemed easiest. She took him down to recruit at Howard's End. End of chapter 43 Recording by Philip Gould